Well, today we're in Romans 12. I want to uh, address this morning, I titled the message, What's Love Got to Do With It? For those of you who are older, you know that that refers to a song. And uh, that was kind of running through my mind um, when I read these verses. And so many times we forget that God's love is something that has been gifted to us. It's been given to us. We should, as Christians, be very familiar and becoming more familiar with it each and every day. And so this morning, as we turn our hearts to God's word, I want to read for us out of Romans chapter 12. And I'm actually going to read the rest of the chapter because it kind of all uh, ties together. But for today, we'll just be looking at verse 9, and then we'll get into everything else. And as I read through this, I just want you to understand that, you know, what what Paul is doing here is he's giving us kind of a a litany of, of things that should be prevalent should be evident in a true believer's life. And so as we go through this list, you'll see it's almost like staccato fashion, just boom, 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 one after the other. As you read, as we read these things together this morning, as we, I read these for you, you know, these are all marks and signs that someone is genuinely converted, genuinely transformed by the grace of God, genuinely saved. Now, some of these... You may read and go, okay, that doesn't really apply to me or whatever, and that's fine. That just means that God is kind of taking care of that in your life. But there are some things that we'll read and we'll study in the coming weeks that, wow, this kind of hurts when we talk about this one. See, and that that means that the Spirit of God is, is using conviction to show you that, you know what, we need some work in these areas. And so none of us have arrived. We're all in the same plane. We're all sinners saved by God's grace, and we're all in the process of sanctification into the image of his glorious Son. And until we arrive there in glory, we will be going through this process. And so uh, some of these may be a blessing. Some of them may, you kind of feel a little uncomfortable when you read them. So I just want to say that before I read it because that's very natural for you to feel that way. But let's turn to Romans 12 and I'll begin in verse 9. Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly Affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Incredible section of scripture. It was Aldous Huxley, the great English novelist, he made this statement. He said, It doesn't take much of a man to be a Christian. It just takes all of them. Or Henry Drummond, who was a dear friend of D. L. Moody, 
put it this way. He says, ladies and gentlemen, the entrance fee to God's kingdom is nothing. But the annual dues are everything. (laughs) See, the Christian life should consume us as believers. It's not something we just do on Sunday or Wednesday. The Christian life is and should be a lifestyle that literally draws circles around how we live each and every day, each and every moment. It was Jesus himself in the Gospels who said this, you come on through a narrow gate and you walk a narrow way. And that's exactly what he meant. See, Christian living is not some free-for-all in the armchairs of grace. It's very defined. It's very restrictive in some sense. And yet, in an odd way, there's freedom in there as we serve the Lord. It doesn't have any latitude at all as far as, you know, you can just do your own thing. But there's awesome freedom in the idea that we can, for the first time as children of God, We have the freedom to honor God with our lives in every way. And that honor only comes when we are willing to do whatever he commands us to do. So as we come to this text in verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. After the first couple verses here in Romans 12, basically it establishes this principle by which sound doctrine is applied to godly living. Paul has begun to write about the church. And we've been looking at this for a couple weeks. And he comes to this very essential part of Romans chapter 12. And, And some people think, well, you know, why did he take so long to get here? <laughs> if this is the practical stuff and everything else up to this point has almost been pure doctrine. Because doctrine is never removed from duty. God never just tells us to do something without laying down a groundwork upon which we can build our faith. And so Paul has begun here to write about the church. And we've been looking at the idea of of the glorious gospel changes our thinking as far as service, as far as sacrifice, as far as the gifts that God has given us. Every believer here this morning has at least one spiritual gift, if not a mix of many. And so we have to be sure that we're using those for his glory. And so he gets through these first several verses here. And in chapters, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he kind of talks about our sacrifice. And then a little further down, he talks about The idea that we have spiritual gifts in verses 3 through 8. And so now you say, well, this is where the real study begins. Well, that's not really the way we we look at it. Because in America, we just like, you know, to have the practical stuff. We don't want to know all the other stuff. But see, Paul's not that way. He lays down a a foundation for this practical living that he calls us to. And so the first 11 chapters... That's what you have to go back and you have to read. If you're visiting with us this morning, you can't just jump in right here. Go back and read all those. Not during my message, take it, but on your own time. And then you'll you'll be up to where you need to be to apply some of these things. And so he says here in 
verses 3 to 8, hey, use your gifts. You've all been gifted differently. And remember, we talked about how this is the first time the church has come together. This is, this is uh, the church that was never around before this. So all of a sudden you have Jew and Gentile, and they're coming together to worship God under one roof. That was just unheard of. And so when that happens, there's a stress for unity. There needs to be unity. And then even more so, when we stop and we look at how we're all gifted uniquely, that could be a recipe for chaos, if you think about it. But through the Spirit of God, he brings us all together in one body and to serve him. And so he comes together here in verse 9 with these lists of Christian duties, things that are evident in a Christian's life. And he, he doesn't use words that are, you know, theological in a sense. They're not abstract. He's thinking of people like you and I who make up the church. Um, and his words first have to do with humility. And then the knowledge of God and the spiritual gifts and all that he outlined there. But when we come to this ninth verse, it says, let love be genuine. See, all this begins and flows out of love. And so we have to understand what love will be or must be. All right. And so it's important that when we we look at these verses... In verse 9 there, he says, let love be genuine. Okay, well, have have you ever thought about love? Have you ever thought about the idea of what it means to love God, what it means to love someone else? Uh, It's a very kind of unique thing when you stop and you think about it. And the Bible speaks of it over and over again to us as believers. In Romans 12 here, he says, basically, he's telling us that love is the motivating factor for the rest of this chapter. It all starts with love. John 13, 35, Jesus said this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So that's the mark of someone who is a true, genuine Believer Or 1 John, we've been going through 1 John on Wednesday nights, and one of the verses we looked at was 1 John 4, 8. It says, the one who does not love God does not know God. Isn't that a radical statement? The one who does not love God does not know God. For God is love. Or 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at a little bit today, in verse, uh, verses 1 to 3, Paul says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and if I have the gift of prophecy, and if I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I give all my possessions to the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, what? It doesn't mean anything. It's empty. And by the way, Paul in that passage is speaking with hyperbole. Okay, a lot of people who believe in the gift of tongues and all that, they say, well, Paul says that he spoke with the gift of, of men and angels. He's using hyperbole. And as I mentioned before when we talked about the gifts, that there's not so, no such thing as angel talk or angel tongue or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's just whenever angels talk to somebody in the Bible, they didn't need a translator. They totally understood what the angel was saying to them. So he's using hyperbole here because obviously he doesn't know all mysteries. He doesn't have all knowledge. He didn't give all of his possessions to the poor. 
Or in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, he writes this, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls, for you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. See, all these things are focused on God's love for us and that we should fervently love one another, he says. Or 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do you know you're, you're saved? Real bottom line, kind of where the, the rubber meets the road here. Because we love the brethren. We love other Christians. He who does not love abides in death. And so 1 John is a wonderful book to really confirm your faith in the Lord. And so love is to be a priority for Christians. All through scripture, everywhere you look. You know, the priority is not how much you know. The priority is not where you go to church. The prior, priority is not what ministry you have or what giftedness you have. The priority is always love. Is the motivation love. So let's look at the definition of love here. You have an outline there. And there's in the New Testament there's basically in, in Greek, there's, there's four of these words that we use for love. Storge, which refers to kind of a family affection, kind of a, a love within the family. Phileo, which denotes love between friends. Eros, which is the sexual kind of love between a, a husband and a wife. Agape, which is God love, which is the love that comes from the Lord. It's pure. It's holy. It's un varying and it's that latter word that latter definition that's used here in verse 9 this love is really by definition it's sincere because god can't be anything but sincere because he's holy and if this love comes from him it has to be the same and so if we're new creatures in christ if christ has saved us if we're if we're transformed, if we've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the Bible says that we are to love without hypocrisy. And since the very nature of this kind of love that has been placed within us by the Father is there, it should be flowing out in our lives. It should be something that just naturally flows out. You don't have to wake up in the morning and say, okay, i got to kind of talk myself into being loving today. The Bible doesn't, this kind of love doesn't come from us. It comes from God. And so the definition of love there in your, in your outline is this unselfish, self-giving, willful devotion that centers on needs and welfare of the one loved and will pay whatever personal price is necessary to meet those needs and foster that welfare. When you stop and you think of that definition, most of us, all of us, would say we fall way short. See, that's why it's God that has to be the author of this kind of love. And so he says here, first, let love be genuine. And this leads us into the next point here, that the nature of, of love. Let's move to the next point. And so the nature of love, you know, it's important because the world, when you talk about love... What do you, you think? Oh, love. You know, you see little birds flying around the person's head. and Lovey-dovey, a little warm feeling. Oh, I'm in love. I fell in love. And, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. Okay? It's not this over 
the sentimental kind of love. Because that's how the world looks at it. That's how the world defines it. It's not some mushy kind of love that just, oh, just God is love. Let's just all hold hands and sing kumbaya. You know, embraces everything, forgives everything, forgets everything, requires nothing. The Bible doesn't say that. You notice here, he doesn't even define love. <laughs> he just mentions it. But he goes to what? The next verses that we're going to look at in the coming weeks are, okay, if you say you have love, well, here's how it functions. Here's what love really looks like. And so he passes immediately, not to how love feels or whatever, but how it functions. And it's the same way when you, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13. You know, when you look at 1 Corinthians 13 this morning, it seems to be defining love. Love is this, love is that. But it only does so in the sense that it tells us what love does and what love does not do. And so here in Romans 12, Paul specifically says two things about love. First of all, he says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. One translation says it's sincere. And then secondly, he says love must be discriminating. But let's look at love be genuine first. I think it's the NIV that translates it, love must be sincere. And that's kind of an okay translation because it's it's same as genuine. And that word sincere, our English word, is actually based on two Latin words. Sincera. And what that means is it means without wax. And so you know that back in this time, they held everything, whether it was water, big jugs of water, small things on the table. They were all in, in pots made of pottery. You know, they didn't have stainless steel. So they used pottery. And so if you were a potter and you could make pots, you had a pretty good job. I mean, that was a pretty good thing to do because everybody needed that. You know, it's kind of like if you were selling toilet paper. Everybody needs toilet paper. That's good, good business to be in, right? I mean, just kind of think about that, you know. So, you know, that's the way it was. Everybody needed a pot. Everybody needed a, something to put their substance in when they're eating, when they're storing things or whatever. And so the, the people that made these, these pots, generally they were within the, the, the community and you would go and you would buy a pot. And occasionally when they would make these pots, they would fire them and, and occasionally they would crack. Well, you know, a cracked pot's not worth anything, right? It's a crack pot. <laughs> so, you know, when you stop and you think about it, all right, you're going to get this pot home. And you're going to put water in it. And all of a sudden you're going to see water all over the floor, all over the table. That's not a good thing. And so what they would do, the dishonest potters... They would take these crack pots and they would say, you know, uh, let's just put a little wax in there, in the crack. And we'll make it real nice and neat so nobody notices. And we'll sell them like it's a perfect pot. And over time, obviously, the wax wore down and you realized it wasn't. But they actually had an ability to go to these things. And when you would buy a pot, you'd hold this pot up to the sun. And if there was any wax in that pot... Yeah, the sun would shine right through it. And he was, hey, what are you trying to do here? What are you trying to pull off on me here? You know, give me a discount. Maybe I'll buy it, but I'm not going to buy this. And so when you knew it was a quality pot on the bottom of the pot, you'd look and it would have stamped sincera without wax. And that was a way of kind of affirm, affirming that this pot was a genuinely 100% crack-free pot. 
And see, here, what he's talking about, he's saying is this, this sincere person is the one who is not trying to hide his true nature. All right? If you're truly a Christian, you're going to see the love of God come out of your life. It's just going to be there. You don't even have to manufacture it. It's the Spirit of God producing that through you. And so you don't have to put on a show. So if I come to your house on Thursday, I'm going to see the same person that I see on Sunday. Or if I visit your office, I'm going to see the same person in your office as you work with your employers or your employees or whatever as I see on Sunday. But we all know in the church today, a lot of times that's just simply not the case. You know, we come to church, we put the little smile on. How are you doing? Oh, fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. When it's not. And see, there's a lack of, I would say, transparency today in the church. And because there's a lack of transparency, there's a lack of prayer. Because everybody thinks everything's okay. You know, I mean, when do you go to the Lord in prayer? Usually when you get that doctor report that doesn't say what you want it to say. Or you look at your finances and things are upside down or your kids are out of control, whatever. Well, then all of a sudden, you know, wow, I got to pray about this. And all of a sudden we're requesting prayer for things like that. But I would say that every day of the week we should be willing to be sincere and be transparent. Be without wax. We don't have to pretend to be something we're not. Well, this word he uses here in the original language doesn't mean without wax, but it means without a mask. (laughs) It means without a mask. And the thing you have to understand is just like the illustration with the clay pots. Back in that time, they had drama going on. I mean, they were very well versed in drama. They had plays and all kinds of things. But it wasn't some fancy platform they did. It was just a, a clear platform usually. They, a lot of times, they didn't even wear, wear uh, costumes. They would just get up and recite their, their lines, whatever the play was, and act, act out. But they would carry a mask. And they had different kinds of masks. They would have one mask that had a great big smile on it. Looked like the big, big you know, laughing face. And they would hold that up. And you knew that when that person held up that mask, that something crazy, funny was going to be said. And they had another guy who would hold the mask and he would have a big sad face or a frown. And you knew that that person was going to be sad or they would have an angry face or they would, you know, have a face with, you know, the eyebrows raised and everything. You boy, this person's really going to be really dramatic in what they say. And so what this word here is, It's saying, don't have a mask. Don't be hypocritical. He says, let your love be genuine. That word genuine means without a mask. Be sincere. John Calvin said this about this in Romans 12. He says, it is difficult to express how ingenious almost all men are in counterfeiting a love which they do not really possess. They deceive not only others, but also themselves. While they persuade themselves that they have a true love for those whom they not only treat with neglect, but also, in fact, reject. Have you ever said this? I've said this to my shame. Well, you know, you just got to love them in the Lord. Just got to love that brother or sister in the Lord. What's that mean? I don't like that brother or sister, but somehow God commands me to love them. So whatever, God can do it, but I don't. I can't. You know, that's not... Not a good way to put it. You know, our love for each other should be sincere. 
And we have to look at this command that we're, we're commanded to love. And this love is from God. But you know what? It's shown through fallen creatures like you and I. It's shown through the death of God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's shown through the Holy Spirit that indwells the believers. I mean, that's why God left us here. I mean, if there was no purpose in us being here, God would just, you know, the moment you got saved, you're out of here. I mean, I vote for that. That would be wonderful. But that's not what God's plan is. He says, no, I'm going to leave you down here on this sin-stained, sin-filled earth to be a representative of my son and to reveal the love of God to others each and every day. The way you treat them, the way you act, the way you work. And so love is to be genuine. Secondly, love is to be discriminating. You say, what? Love is to be discriminating. See, this goes against everything the world teaches us. But this is what Paul is saying. Look at what he says there in verse 9. He says, let love be genuine. And then he says, abhor, the ESV says. Some translations say hate. That's what the word means. Hate what is evil. I mean, I've never seen two opposite words next to each other like that. Let love be genuine. Hate. Right, right the next word there. Immediately after, love must be genuine. So we have to get this right. First love, then hate. <laughs> that, doesn't, that just doesn't even sound right. It seems incompatible to most of us. But they're not. They're not. And this verse teaches us that. Uh, God's ways are not our ways, right? And so we have to look at what God's ways are here. Love must be discriminating. Real love does not love everything. And he doesn't love everything the same. I mean, think if just in a marriage, think if your love for your spouse was the same as your love for your neighbor. You say, wait a minute, something wrong there, right? That's just not right. Right? So love in its own definition is, is kind of discriminating. But here, real love does not love everything. On the contrary, it actually hates, it abhors what is evil. And then it goes on and it says, and it clings what is good. Now, some studies, they say, okay, God gives us three things here. First, let love be genuine. That's the first thing. Secondly, they say, hate what is evil. And then thirdly, we're to hold fast to what is good. That's not really the Greek construction here. What he's saying is, Basically, if your love is genuine, you will be hating, it's a participle, what is evil, and you'll be holding fast to what is good. So these hating and this holding fast flow out of the love that God has brought into our lives. I mean, 1 John 4, 8, we read it earlier, God is love. God is not only love, beloved. He is also hate. He's hate in the sense that he hates what is evil. And he hates it with a proper righteous hatred. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19 says this. It says basically, it tells us seven things that the Lord hates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deceives wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush, rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension, among brothers. Those seven things the Lord hates, and he hates it with a vengeance. Or Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 to 15 tells us that God hates religion that is merely formal. It's merely an act. He writes in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 12, when you come to appear before me, 
Who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbath, convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your anointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. That's the hate of God. Or Amos chapter 5, verse 21, God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals and feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. I mean, the reason that he hates all that is because their observances were purely hypocritical. And love is not hypocritical. That's Paul's point. So if we love as God loves, and if we, we must, if we're truly believers, if we're truly Christians, then we will be, there, will, there will be things for us to hate as well. But see, the opposite of that is that we will love the humble and we'll be the ones who are working for peace. Why? Because we want to honor God to reach out and love and yet hate what they do, but say, you know what? We, you need to turn from your ways and pray that God would reach their lost souls. But we'll hate lying, especially those who are in important positions, whether it's in your, your job, your company, political figures. They don't just get a pass. We'll hate what their lies do to others, yet we'll love the truth. And so this idea of discriminating, you have to stop and you have to say, you know, yeah, God, God does hate, but he also loves. And that, that hatred that he does have for these things is a pure hatred. It's a righteous hatred. So love hates evil, but it also, secondly, it says here it holds fast or it clings to what is good. So as believers, we have a responsibility to hate what is wrong in the world. And then we also have a responsibility to cling to what is good. And it has the idea of epoxy. It's like you're stuck. Have you ever worked with epoxy or, or uh, even, uh, what's that glue called? The super glue kind of stuff, you know? I remember as a kid, we used to take uh, super glue and we'd be building something. And then, oh, man, okay, my fingers are stuck together. Oh, no, it's just a mess. That's the idea here. And it's just going to come naturally out of this love that God has placed in us. You know, we don't have to get up in the morning and say, oh, man, I just want to really hold on to what is good. No, it just naturally occurs in our life as believers. And so this is all coming out of this love that comes from God. And so to understand that love better, I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we'll just close our time with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And this speaks of the, the, the prominence or the preeminence of love. Why does love have to be this foundation that everything else builds upon? Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're probably very familiar with it, but it's important to lay this foundation. Paul writes in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to even remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not loved, I gain nothing. Well, what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. 
And then he goes into what love does not do. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Or love never ends, excuse me. As far as prophecies, they will fail. They will pass away. As far as tongues, they will cease. As far as knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is what? His love. See, Paul is laying down a foundation for us because he wants us to understand that, you know what, if we're going to be able to do what we're called to do in the Christian love or the Christian life, the first thing we have to be able to do first and foremost is understand and possess the love of God. And if you don't possess that, everything else is a sham. Everything else he goes on and he talks about in Romans 12 that he calls the body of Christ to do, how we're to treat others and, and think and all these things he's going to, we're going to study in the coming weeks. If we don't have the love of God first and foremost, if we don't have that relationship with Christ, it doesn't mean anything. And so first he tells us here how important love is. There's, there's, if you break this chapter down in 1 Corinthians 13, he tells us how important it is in the first paragraph there. The third paragraph says that love will endure even when everything else, kind of prophecies, tongues, and all that stuff will be ceased. And then the, the last paragraph there, it says love is more important than these enduring things such as even faith and hope. Well, he gives several statements here, and I just want to read them and kind of just share a little bit about each one, and then we'll close up. First of all, he says love is patient. He says love is patient. Um, And this is the normal attitude of love. This isn't something, once again, that you have to drum up on your own. And why do we need this? We need this because people are difficult. Some people can be exasperating. Love understands all these things, and so it waits patiently. It knows that God is patient with us, amen? So we should be called to be patient with others. So love is patient. Secondly, love is kind. The world is filled with hurting people. I mean, hurting people every day. And love knows this, and so we try to find a way to help, to serve, to encourage, whatever might be. Be quick to speak an encouraging word. Don't, don't be discouraging Thirdly, love does not envy. See, the first two here, descriptions of love has been positive. But here, he gives eight negative statements about love. Saying what love does not do. Love is not envious. It's not jealous. We're glad, we're happy for people who win honors and achieve fame and strike it rich or whatever. And, you know, we, we, we thank the Lord for blessing them. We know that God's love has allowed us to be content with life. But we can only have that if we have this love of God. Fourthly, love does not boast. I mean, the world is full of people who boast all the time. I mean, we're always trying to call attention to ourselves or who we are or 
people we know, how much we've achieved. And he's saying love, sincere love does not do this because love doesn't think more highly of it. You don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. A wise man once said this, there is no limit to what a man can achieve if he's not worried about who gets the credit. That's so true. It comes out of true love. Love is not proud, he says. That's the opposite of humility. So love is something that's humble. Love doesn't have inflated ideas of itself. It's gracious. Love is not rude. That's the opposite of, 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 uh, of rudeness is, is courtesy. The opposite of rudeness is courtesy. So love has good manners. It thinks of others. Sometimes it holds its tongue instead of just blurting out whatever's in your mind. You wait for others to speak. You're courteous. You don't dominate the conversation. Love is not self-seeking, he says. You know, the world asks the question continuously, what's in it for me? I've even shared Christ with people, and they say, well, what's in this for me? I mean, the whole modern-day church evangelism thing is built on that, right? God has a wonderful plan for your life. So you got to stop, and you got to say, well, wait a minute. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, Paul said that he made himself nothing taking on the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, that Christ did even death on the cross, speaking of Christ. So he wasn't here to seek his own way. He was here to fulfill the Father's purpose for him. Eighth thing there, love is not easily angered. You know, when you stop and you look at all the anger in our world today, why is it there? It's because there's a lack of love. You show me a young person who's angry. I'll show you someone who's lacking in love in their life somewhere along the line. The conduit of love has been clogged up. They don't have a proper understanding of love. It says love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. This is very practical for us. I mean, we all at times have a knack of bringing up mistakes that people have made in the past. Sometimes decades afterwards. Oh, you remember that time when you said this? Or you said, <laughs> well, you know what? The Bible says that love forgets these wrongs. You don't have a book of statistics. How many, how many times this person did this to you? It doesn't, it's not resentful. It's not vindictive. And you know what? God will help you in this area. If you have a problem, there's a lot of Christians that have a problem with this. You know, as a matter of fact, I hear a lot of Christians say, you know, I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget. <laughs> well, wait a minute. You know, that's not this kind of love. Now, I'm not saying we just, you know, if you walk up to somebody and they bop you in the nose, you don't walk up to them again and, hey, bop me again. I don't care. I mean, we're not going to be silly about this. But at the same time, the Bible says that we shouldn't keep a record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. Sometimes I'm amazed at what even Christians find entertaining. Pure evil. Love rejoices with the truth. And this is kind of the other half of the positive thing. It says, love rejoices with the truth. Love loves the truth. Above all, we love the truth of the Bible. That's why we teach from it. That's why we read it. That's why we study it. That's why we want to understand it more. That's why we share it with people. Because we know that it is the truth. It says here that love always protects. It always protects. Matthew 19, verse 14, makes an important point about children. Love protects children because it knows that the kingdom of heaven 
belongs to such as these. You know, we take our children's ministry very seriously here, whether it's in the nursery, whether it's downstairs. We want to protect these young lives. Love always trusts. This is a good one. It means it's not suspicious. A lot of suspicious Christians running around. You know, they're trying to see under the surface of everything. What's your really, what's your real purpose? Why are you asking me this question? Why are you doing this? Why? You know, now love isn't stupid or gullible either, but it always thinks of the best. It just just try to, try to think of the best in somebody. Don't constantly question somebody's motive because that's the quality that brings out the best in other people. Love always hopes. It's the last thing here this morning. Love always hopes. Uh, Love always hopes. Love does not stop loving because it is not loved in return. That's the kind of love that God has for us, right? I mean, there are times that we probably all do not show God the proper amount of love and respect. And he's our savior. He's, He's the one who provided this way of salvation for us. There's probably days we don't do that. But you know what? He doesn't sit up in heaven and go, okay, well, have it your way. Then I'm just not going to love you. (laughs) He doesn't play those kind of games. Love always hopes. And then the last thing, love always perseveres. Love never gives up. See, this kind of love, beloved, is unconquerable. It's, it's, it's just will always win in the end. It will outlast hate. It will outlast evil. It will outlast indifference. Because love can outlast anything. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote this. It is the one thing that stands after everything else has fallen. Love. So I ask you, do you know this kind of love? Do you know the God of love? Do you know the kind of love that he showed us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, the Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. Love has come into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. Love has been shown to us. And now we are to show that love to others because we're his disciples. It's interesting in that verse in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, God is love. He follows up that verse, and he says this, no one has ever seen God. But in verse 12, it says, if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And what I want to leave you with this morning is that, you know what? The world cannot see God. They can only see him in the way that Christians love each other. That's not meant to be some sentimental saying, but that's why we're here, to show this sin-stained, fallen world the love of Christ. Back in Paul's day, the pagans marveled at that kind of love. They looked at that and said, wow, how can this be? They even said, behold, look at how these Christians love one another. I want to ask you, do you love like that? Because if you don't, it's going to be a tough couple weeks coming up. You have to experience that first kind of love to ever be able to carry out these characteristics that Paul is calling us to in Romans 12, 10, and forward. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that your word would impact our hearts and our minds. Father, I thank you that this love that you gave us is genuine, that it's sincere, it's without wax. You're not a God who is a hypocritical God. You love us one day, and based on what we do, you don't love us the next. Now, your love is lasting. It will persevere to the end. It will stand above all else. 
And Father, we thank you with grateful hearts that you've allowed us to experience this love through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray even now that as you work in the hearts and minds of the people gathered here this morning, that you would do that work, whatever you desire it to be, through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit, that you would convict, that you would encourage, that you would even cause repentance if need, need be to fall upon the hearts here this morning. And Father, we, we thank you for this building. Thank you that we can gather here on a weekly basis. And, and Lord, we just thank you for your constant provision for your people in every way. And Father, help us to have in mind this love when we walk out these doors today, that there's people out there who are not just filled with hate, but they, they've never seen or heard the love, experienced the love of God. And we may be the first opportunity for them to do so. And so we pray that you would lead us and guide us through the power of your spirit, that we would not be shy in our presentation of the truth to people, but, Lord, that we would be ever diligent to uphold your word and be faithful to what you've called us to do. Lord, if there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in you for their salvation, I pray that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a biblical prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. And that's prayed from a sincere heart, from a heart that needs to be saved, a heart that recognizes their own sinfulness before a holy God. And the remedy for that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his provision on the cross. You will be saved. You'll be transformed. You'll be be made a new person. Old things will pass away. All things will become new. And for the first time, you will experience the kind of love we're talking about here today. We thank you and we praise you. Pray for our fellowship time over in the fellowship hall afterwards, the meal that we'll have together. Just pray you bless the food, bless those who made it. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.